turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio, the world's longest running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yes, indeed. Yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh here. Fun show today, folks. Very edgy show. Yes, that's a pun. We're going to talk all about the edge. The next frontier, why edge changes everything. We've got an all-star cast here. We'll hear from Chris Beepers of NS1. We've got Simon Michelson from Citera. And we have Tony Craythorn from Zadera. And we're going to talk all about what the edge is and why you should care about it. The edge really refers to a variety of things. Your cell phone is part of the edge. Routers in a shopping mall are part of the edge. If you're in manufacturing, you could have some equipment way out at the edge. IoT is a big edge topic. So the Internet of Things, all the different objects out there that are connecting to networks to let you know what's going on in the real world. The oil and gas industry, for example, a lot of edge computing use cases out in oil and gas, because guess what? That that equipment is way out in the middle of nowhere. And if you have these monitoring devices, these signals on there letting you know what's going on and what's changing, that's a very useful thing. But edge really does change a lot from an architectural perspective, right? Because we used to be on-prem and we knew what that was and everything was on-prem. It may have been complicated, but at least we knew where it was. Well, then the cloud came along, of course. Early cloud players, Salesforce was obviously a real big one, but now we have these really hyperscale solutions in Microsoft and their cloud Azure. You've got Google Cloud Platform and, of course, Amazon Web Services. So we thought, okay, now we have a hybrid cloud situation to worry about. How do we deal with security? How do we deal with moving data around? Where do the apps actually function? How much can we do in the data center versus in the cloud? And now we have the edge. So from an architectural perspective, you have a lot of a lot of things you can do, and now out at the edge, you have to realize sometimes there's not great power, sometimes there's not great connectivity. These are pretty significant constraints to keep in mind. So with that, we're going to bring in our guests and go around the horn here. First, uh, Chris Beavers from NS1. Tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how you folks are dealing with the edge. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, it's great to be back again, um, and this is a really uh, well-aligned topic for us. You know, I am a uh, the, uh, the co-founder and CEO here at NS1. I'm an engineer. Um, I think, uh, you know, the edge topic for us starts way back long before we started this company, which is now almost 10 years old. Um, you know, my, my backstory is building uh, internet infrastructure, you know, even as early as the early 2000s. And um, the business that I was leading engineering in before NS1 uh, was a, a global cloud hosting, content delivery, and kind of everything internet infrastructure company through that time frame, like the mid late two thousands, right? And 
one of the things that we were building then was a, a global content delivery network. This is the kind of infrastructure that serves up cat pictures to you when you're looking at them on the internet or, you know, serves the video to you that you're watching on your streaming service or whatever. And even back then in 2007 and eight, uh, we needed to solve edge problems, right? We needed to put those pieces of content closer to audiences all over the world to solve for uh, issues around latency and throughput of the content and the reliability with which you could interact with it. Uh, and we also really needed to solve a lot of problems around how do you get the user to the right infrastructure close to them at the edge at the right time to interact with or engage with that content. We put a lot of work into that. The other thing that we were doing at the time was working with all of these up and coming web and SaaS and software companies uh, who all started to have the same challenge, right? They all started to realize like my users are all over the world. They're interacting with my code and my data and my content. Mm -hmm. um, and all of it is sitting in Ashburn, Virginia, in some big fancy data center, right? And I really need to put the code and the data and the content closer to those end users to have great engagement. And that's what led to NS1, right? One, one of the things that we do at NS1 is we are the front-facing infrastructure, uh, the DNS infrastructure for a huge chunk of the internet. If you type in linkedin.com to your browser, our job is give you back the IP address of the right edge infrastructure for LinkedIn to engage with and interact with to drive a great experience for you mm -hmm. with that application. We do that for a huge chunk of the internet. And the reason they all work with us is um, all of them are operating now these edge footprints that are dynamic, very distributed, and they need to solve this problem of getting users to the right code and data at the right time for those great experiences. So that's a little bit about what edge means to us. Yeah, that's fantastic. And a lot of threads we're going to pull on throughout the course of our show. Let's get an opening statement from Simon Michelson. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing in the world of edge computing. Sounds good. Thank you, Eric. And also thank you for, uh, you know, touching on edge computing as, uh, as an architecture, because it really is. And I think the way we think about edge computing is entirely different today now with, of course, the cloud and play. Um, so a little bit about Cetera. Uh, we started uh, back in 2008, and we kind of anticipated that transition, right? That new delivery of content and how um, we can improve about how we deliver content across uh, a widely distributed network. Um, so our background is also from the network distri uh, distributed network space, and um, we've kind of dived into this data space about and specifically solving the challenge of providing a ubiquitous file presentation that's accessible through any number of locations. So we're really identifying that gravity that data has, right? Data especially can be multi-petabytes of content managed by organizations, and they're dealing with challenges of running out of capacity, um, providing high available, highly available storage, and then providing that presentation across multiple continents, cities, states, uh, and doing that in a way that provides performance to our downstream users, applications, and devices, but at the same time, not compromising on things like reliability, security, availability of our systems. Um, so we're very passionate about, about that part and, of course, providing that native data, data protection, but we also see this movement towards uh, the knowledge age or what we call uh, data analytics, right? So once you're able to provide an architecture that provides that uh, performance at the edge, you also want to maybe look at the data that you're collecting and try to, to, to derive some, some additional value from it. 
Mm-hmm. That's a little bit about Cetera, and I'll end with myself. Uh, I'm the North American CTO for Cetera, uh, based out of New York. I love it. <clears throat> and that means you're an East Coast CTO, by the way. One of the funniest things I heard probably in, in 25 years of doing these shows was a guy who told me, it's actually George Corajedo from a company called Red Point Global, super, super smart guy. He was getting you know, all these calls, people trying to peel him away from his company. And he was talking to one kid who was like, uh, just learning about him. He goes, oh, so you're an East Coast CTO. And he's like, what does that mean? He goes, well, West Coast CTOs know one thing really well. East Coast CTOs know lots of things. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's funny. I mean, that's just a funny observation about these yeah, right. CTO. <laughs> it's pretty accurate, too. You're like, oh, I guess that actually makes sense. Uh, okay, last but not least, Tony Craythorn is out there from Zadera. Tony, tell us about yourself and the role you're playing in edge computing. Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you. Um, edge computing is uh, is near and dear to our heart because Zadara are actually the world's largest edge computing, edge, edge cloud provider. We have um, just over 400 locations worldwide. We deliver, deliver our network across a variety of MSPs and, and direct through our cloud. Um, the company was originally formed um, around storage as a service. In fact, the, the company was born as a cloud-native storage service, whereas everybody else has tried to just shoehorn hardware into 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 to, to create a new cloud. Uh, right. Our business grew by by actually designing um, storage as a service um, and building our entire tech stack around that. For example, our file block and objects. Um, is a unified storage. So you, you don't need separate storage pools for file block or objects. You can use one storage pool, and that mm-hmm. gives you a lot of different advantages. But in uh, while COVID was happening, the company saw a need to, to, to shift towards um, a full stack, and we acquired a very small company that had a fantastic um, EC2-compatible compute platform, and we integrated that. So what, what Zadar is today is the world's largest edge full-stack EC2 S3-compatible um, edge cloud. Um, and again, we, we have 400 locations. We have hundreds of, hundreds of those interconnected. Um, our customers range from, from analytics companies to, to medical, to state governments, to car manufacturers. Uh, go, going third in, the, in this list, Means that you guys have already defined edge, so I don't need to. I don't. I don't really need to do that. All, all the things that you talked you talked about about latency, security. One of the biggest things we offer is cost savings. You know, we yeah. we 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 are able to deliver uh, a fully EC2 compatible full stack com- compute and storage um, without the cost saving, the costs of, of dealing with hyperscalers, ingress, egress fees, etc. So we save save our customers on average about forty percent. We work. We work. With our customers, both in, in multi-cloud environment, they're, they're on AWS, they have on-prem, we bridge the gap between the two. Um, and about me, I've been in service storage since time began, basically, and I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm the least smart of everybody on this call because you guys are all engineers, and I'm, I'm a sales guy. I'm the chief revenue officer, so I'll, I'll do my best to keep up. Well, uh, every company needs sales. So without sales, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. So, uh, <laughs> you're not going to get very far. <laughs> not going to get far. Well, I saw his yeah I saw a hysterical uh, meme the other day that showed I think it was of uh, uh, that uh, that golfer Daly John Daly maybe Daly. his name is kind of big rough and tumble guy and uh, it showed like some regular golfing guy and then him and he's dressed in all these colorful clothes he's like smoking <laughs> a cigarette acting crazy and uh, it said this is the sales guy and that's the guy all dressed up nice 
and Daly was the sales engineer. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. But they, they're the ones that they're the ones that actually close the deal and do the selling. So the sales guy sits back, and the and the SA and the SE does all the work. So, and I love sales engineers because they can talk the talk, but they can also walk the walk, yep. and they can usually go in multiple different directions. You because when you're selling a technology like this, and I'll throw this over to Chris Beavers to comment on, there are so many factors to keep in mind and from a business person's perspective it can be pretty complex and pretty bewildering to kind of know where this one contract ends and this other contract begins and how do we collaborate how do we dovetail our security with your security i mean these are very serious questions and of course everything's changing all the time so chris you know how do you future proof your architecture your information architecture from a provisioning perspective from a security perspective hmm. how do you guys handle that well that's a really interesting question so a couple a couple immediate gut reactions to that question step one as a vendor right like i'm a vendor and i care about my customers and how they have to solve these problems right so step one for me is i talk to my customers right like uh what do they care about what are they trying to optimize for what problems do my customers have that they're trying to solve right and and the reason the reason our customers are moving to the edge you know to capture it very simply is they're trying to provide great experiences to the people mm -hmm. they care about right end users uh their customers you know those audiences out there um, and for context, right, our customers primarily are applications that you use all day, every day, right? Um, streaming media, uh, you know, news, SaaS applications, those kinds of web and other properties. That's who we're working with, right? And um, they, they've become more global. They've learned that um, their audiences, wherever their audiences are, have high expectations of any kind of interactive um, engagement, uh, as we all do, right? Um, we all really hate it when, uh, you know, the, the, the photo of the shirt that you're looking at on a shopping website doesn't load or, you know, the buffering icon comes up when you're trying to watch a, a, a piece of video or something like that, right? So that's what those customers ultimately care about. And they're always thinking, about how are we going to progress those ultimate priorities in our business? Great user experience, which equals for them, uh, you know, conversion, continued engagement with their application, and so on. Um, also, they're always thinking about how are we going to continue to increase, uh, like, the quality of the experience. So, put yourself in a in a streaming media organization's shoes. How are we going to support 8K next year? How are we going to support the next thing after that? Um, the volume of data is multiplying. The ex expectations of latency are always going down. Those are things that are pretty predictable for all these organizations, right? So when they're thinking about the future of their architectures, they're, they're thinking about their roadmaps with respect to um, increasing volumes of data, decreasing goals on latency or response time, um, increasing expectations on uh, rate of change in the systems and on the expectations for ex ex uh, experience. And also, and, you know, something that, that Tony touched on, how the heck am I going to pay for all that? Because exactly. guess what isn't going on? <laughs> Cost is a major factor, right? So, exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah, and it's hard to know where the costs are going to be until you start doing this stuff, right? I mean, you have to rely on your consulting partners and 
of course, the vendors when you're talking to them to kind of figure it out. But you know, one of the things that really fascinates me most, and I'll throw, throw this over to you, Chris, before we go to our first break here, is that you know, out of the edge, it's kind of like the early days, right? Because you have to be much more lean with your code. You have to be much more strategic. There are more constraints to worry about. I mentioned low power usage, for example, or bad connectivity. So you have to normalize for this data and, and understand what does it mean when we don't hear back, for example. So it's uh, it's a good proving ground, I think, the edge is for technology. If it can work on the edge, it can work in the data center, it can work in the cloud. What do you think? Well, I, I generally agree with that, right? And, you know, just to start to paint a, a practical picture of some of this, right? Um, so in service of meeting the modern latency expectations and increasingly connected world that we all live in, um, you know, you talked about IoT, right? The explosion of devices that I have. 50 something connected devices in my house or if i go down to my local coffee shop it's it's full of connected infrastructure from the point of sale to the ip cameras to the local retail analytics tons of data is flying around more than has ever flown around before but the exact conditions and problems you just described they really exist right um there's Thirty thousand global coffee shops in some global coffee chain and they need to give you a connected experience but guess Guess what they can't count on, right? Um, they can't count on, you know, deep compute and storage infrastructure in every one of those stores. They can't count on consistent connectivity. So what do you end up needing to do? You end up needing to start to move smarts out to where the action is happening, where the right. data is being generated, where it needs to be processed in real time to provide you that great experience. And so many problems start to emerge when you distribute the code and the data more widely with uh, less consistent connectivity, limited compute. And those are all the problems that are shaking out now. The term I use is Wild West, right? Like the edge is the Wild West right now, to the extent that we can't even define the term, right? It's a, it's kind of a, we used the word fog earlier when we were, we were chatting, right? And um, it's a foggy term in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, I tend to think of uh, what's really happening. Edge is maybe not a great label, all compute storage and bandwidth is becoming more distributed and now needs to be orchestrated to provide uh, outcomes, right? These kinds of experiences we're trying to generate. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And we'll pick this up after the break, folks. We're talking all things edge computing today, why it changes everything, architectural decisions, security, and experiences. That's a great point Chris made. Edge is really about delivering that optimal experience for your end user. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. From programming languages and operating systems to databases, frameworks, and middleware, open source software is a fundamental component of the modern IT infrastructure. But what happens when that open source breaks? OpenLogic by Perforce provides expert technical support and services for organizations working with open source software, enabling them to enjoy the innovation and cost savings of open source without the risk. With SLA-backed support for over 450 open-source packages delivered directly by experienced enterprise architects, OpenLogic customers receive the technical support and professional services they need to reach their goals. Ready to enjoy open-source without the risks? Visit OpenLogic.com. That's O-P-E-N-L-O-G-I-C.com to learn more today. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. 
Welcome back to DM Radio, talking all things edge computing today with Tony Craythorn, Simon Michelson, and Chris Beavers. And Simon, I wanted to get you back into the conversation here, talking about the constraints of the edge. And it's very topographically diverse, right? There are lots of different things out there at the edge, lots of different processors, different boxes, different machines, different protocols. So really being able to wrangle all that and understand the tapestry you're working with before you start painting your, your workflows and your apps, right? Tell us how you guys help customers deal with the constraints out on the edge. Right. So this is a great topic, actually, Erica. You know, some of the things we also notice different energy powers, right? There are different right. energy levels, different uh, different edge sites. So um, you have to kind of account for those different types of architectures. Um, as we stay very close, like Chris mentioned, to our customers and understanding what their roadmap is um, and how their what, what the landscape is comprised of. So we see um, any number of things from different hypervisors, different uh, bare metal systems, different sensors that would have different limitations associated with them. So they require an edge instance that's really tailored for their use, right? So it's very optimal and it's able to harness the power that's provided to them. But as a vendor, we have to provide that kind of, uh, you know, unified platform through software that can be installed in any number of locations or any kind of architecture. So providing that type of abstraction layer is really critical. Um, and another point is about how do we handle content caching? And this is, I think, is a, is, a, is a concept that Chris mentioned is how do you make data accessible in a way that, you know, it's very on, stored on a very limited device. So one of the things we do at Cetera is uh, we use intelligent data caching that studies user behavioral patterns. And based on those behavioral patterns, we're able to stage the data so it's really close to that and application or user so they enjoy from you know fast response times so that's one i think topic that helps address those limited bandwidth and circuits you have from the edge all the way back to the data center and latency of course when optimization is, a, is top of mind for a lot of these widely distributed organizations um, and then another topic that kind of ties into that as you have this highly distributed architecture is consistency <laughs> Sorry. My bad. Um, no worries. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, um, it's quarter in, so my phone's blowing up at the moment. So. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. And, Go ahead, Simon. So, so the other topic is, is really the consistency and speed, right? If we manage so many of these nodes, how do we then propagate security policy? software updates, any configuration management at a very large scale, we want to be able to do that across any number of edge sites, right? Um, so providing that kind of central place where you can uh, 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 provide automated change management and control is, is also highly critical for a lot of these organizations we find. Yeah, and I'm guessing, and maybe I'll throw this one over to, to Chris, and then we'll get, uh, um, uh, let's see, Tony back into the conversation, but really understanding and being able to quickly ascertain what are the objects out there on the edge? What are the protocols out here? Being able to sense what they are and then understand the sort of interdependencies and how they work together on certain workflows. And that's pretty important stuff to, to know, okay, we have XYZ devices over here, ABC devices over there. Being able to very quickly understand under, what is the footprint of this thing? What, mm -hmm. what is this thing that we're dealing with? That's a big part of the equation, right? You have to know that before you start managing and, and designing your workflows, right, Chris? It's a huge piece of the puzzle and one that we think a lot about, right? So, um, you know, Simon just referred to what, what, what we'll term usually fleet management, right? You've got a 
highly distributed set of whatever it is out there. And how are you going to manage and orchestrate your data, your configuration, your code, whatever it is with respect to that fleet that is, as Simon said really well, very heterogeneous, very complex. Um, and one of the starting points of this, you know, the, the edge is, is representative of this explosion and complexity, right? Uh, something we've seen in our customers from the start of our business. One of the ways we manage complexity is automation, right? Um, humans don't scale, um, you know, with, with the scale and, and complexity and distribution of the edge. We need to start to automate. One of the linchpins that we found automation is, well, step one is know what the heck is out there in my fleet, right? Understand, you know, what is on these networks and what all the connected devices and systems and so on actually are. One of our big areas of investment is in what we call network source of truth, right? Like mm-hmm. what is, it's the system of record, call it, for what's out there. Um, and, you know, one of the first steps in an automation strategy is get that source of truth um, and maintain it and manage it so that, you can, uh, you know, drive your automation from that. One of the important linchpins to doing that, of course, is being able to observe what is out there at the edge, right? Being able to um, go and inspect your edge sites, your edge systems, your edge devices, whatever it is, and understand the nature of them, uh, understand the traffic that is flowing around and so on. So this is another big area of investment. And, you know, back to the theme of hard problems um, that emerge at the edge. How do you observe what is happening across Mm -hmm. these incredibly distributed footprints? And of course, that has the side effect of generating a lot of data. Um, The same problem we've been talking about. There's these circular problems that start to emerge at the edge. And a lot of our investment is figuring out also then how do you move some of the processing of that data out to the edge um, uh, and bring back to your source of truth or your batch processing systems or whatever it is, what you need, not everything, but what you need. So a whole lot of problems that start to emerge just just around this one little concept of like wrangling what is what is out there and starting to orchestrate it. Yeah, and you, you bring up this great topic of observability and you're right, it's more data. But the observability is, is really fundamentally changing a lot of the game in, in very positive ways. Maybe I'll throw this one over to Tony to comment on because once you can see what's happening, then you can problem solve much easier. I mean, we've gone through all these sort of cycles over the last 30 years of trying to figure out what can we know, then what yep. can we do about what we know, and then you know more, and you kind of you sort of level up. But to Chris's point, the complexity curve is just blown out these days. So it's like you must have automation. You must have observability to really get somewhere or you're just going to get blown over by a tsunami of data that will make no sense to you, and people will go back to gut instinct. What do you think, Tony? We, we, we have obviously been, you know, our, our heritage is storage. You know, we, we've got hundreds and hundreds of petabytes out there of both file block and objects. And, and the, where the, the, obviously everybody knows it's no secret that file, file data is the one that's exploding like crazy. You know, there, there are a multitude of tools out there that now can analyze data, can, can, can construct data, can move data, et cetera. But, you know, from, from our perspective, I'm, I'm, I'm probably coming at it slightly differently from, from the other two guys, given what we are. We are an edge cloud provider. What, what we offer is, um, is the ability for us to take those down into, into, into smaller chunks while still mm-hmm. interconnecting them and across, across what we call our federated edge, which is, again, hundreds of our sites that are connected, um, and, and then get, be, enable them to get better, better visibility into what their data has. What definitely has come along is analytics have come a long way um, 
to, to be able to provide actual real-time information back into what the heck's out there. But um, I, I don't think the challenge is ever going to go away because just data continues to, to explode at an exponential rate, and it's just going to get worse and worse. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. And you know, I'll bring Simon back in. You mentioned analytics earlier, and I'll tell you one of the more interesting use cases I heard in the early days of edge computing was uh, geared around Cisco's routers, which one of our guests told me were, were built to have two processors and the thought process back in the day was in case one of the processors die, the other one kicks in and gets the job done. Well, some clever person figured out for edge use cases, you can use one processor to do what's normally doing the routing and the other processor can be focused on the data crunching. So you figure like facial recognition at, at, uh, at uh, casinos, for example, you know, you're, you're pulling in information and then one of those little processors is just running algorithms all day looking for the bad guys. That's a pretty clever use case, uh, Simon. What do you think about that? I do. And I think, you know, we all have those on our phones today. We all have dedicated chips for machine learning that optimize the images we take. I don't know how many know this, but whenever we take an image, uh, our phones know how to automatically filter and maybe make them look a little bit better, right? Um, we yep. also have autocorrection, and uh, it studies the way, um, you know, the language we use, what are those common words, and they they proposed it ahead of time. Um, and I think, Eric, uh, when you mentioned this is, um, this is really the opportunity of leveraging additional processing power to not only deliver the service, but also use another processor for additional capabilities, whether that be real-time analytics, whether that's replication, we use that concept also in Cetera quite often is that we have multiple processors. One may be responsible for immediate file serving, another responsible for replication of data, and then third, responsible for machine learning, determining those patterns of how users access the data so we can stage it at the right location uh, based on that uh, uh, intelligence. Um, so I, I love that approach. I think this is uh, um, a really unique, interesting option of, of providing value close to where the entity resides, where the user and application is. It does not mean that we defer all of our analytics to the edge. I think at the same time, we realize that cloud computing is terrific for big data analytics. Yeah. And we want to, and like Chris mentioned, we want to create that single source of truth, our authoritative copy, right? That's our master data set that we rely on. We can always recover from, but we can also use that pool of storage to run big data analytics. So we can further improve as an organization, identify new opportunities, uh, provide better care for our patients, whatever field that organization is really practicing in. We, we actually have a real-time example of that going on right now with, with Seagate. Um, Seagate launched LiveCloud, and we're the compute engine for it. And we've, we've literally just, in the, in the past few weeks, spun up their, well, spinning up our second cloud for them running one of their, their largest analytics applications. And we had to design a whole brand new system for them to do it. Um, it it's a huge application. They're, uh, they're going to be taking it to market as well. But, but we, to, to your point, we, you know, we have some pro, we have a level of server that's doing one thing, processing one level, then, then filtering it down to the next level and the next level, et cetera. It's, uh, we've got it deployed in on the East Coast, the West Coast. We're about to go to Singapore with it, and then we're going to go to, to Europe with it and continue expanding. And they're doing exactly that, analytics crunching at the edge. And yeah, that's, that's great to huge customer of ours. Yeah, correct. Just to chime in briefly, uh, very briefly on this one, uh, you, you know, analytics crunching at the edge has been a big theme for us, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are swimming all the time in network data. Like, what's what are all these packets flowing across the network? And one of the 
problems we have operationally and also our customers all have is understanding the nature of that stuff. Then you start to run into trade-offs, right? Like the more widely distributed the the edge the edge footprint becomes, um, the more you have to ask yourself, do I want to crunch all that stuff at the edge? Do I want to slurp it up into some batch processing system? What are my real-time requirements? What are my data transfer um, uh, costs going to look like? And so a different concept that we've um, found emerging in our own architecture and, and that of our customers is this idea of what we call small data, right? So we all talk about big data all the time. We love small data. We distribute the analytics, as you guys have just talked about, all the way out to the edge. We crunch all this stuff. And we bring back only the tidbits that really matter for us to look at. Um, and it enables us to distribute the processing cost, um, you know, simplify or reduce the data transfer costs, drives real-time value. And so depending on the kinds of applications, this notion of analytics at the edge, I think, is really powerful and can maybe change the way we think about big data um, or even, you know, give us give us new concepts like this small data concept. Absolutely. You know, it was just the other day I was talking uh, to another vendor in this space, and I remembered the whole concept of asynchronous Java on XML or whatever it was, Ajax, when they came out with that. It's a similar concept to what we're talking about here because what you want to do is understand at the edge what are we trying to understand, and you don't want to be throwing tons of data back over the network to get back to the, the data center or even to the cloud. And so that's why I'll maybe I'll throw it to Simon for quick commentary. That's why architecture is such a big issue here is really figuring out what are we trying to do? Where, when do we want to send signal back over the wire? Is it only at the important times? What do we want to accomplish at the edge? What do we want to accomplish in the data center? I mean, there are lots of different options here and uh, it takes some real thought to figure out how to, to juggle all that. Right, Simon? Right. And I think, uh, Eric, you know, one of the one of the cons- infrastructure considerations to this also is the fact that, you know, as we're highly distributed, our ability to con- or our connections back to that central facility, whether it be a core data center or the cloud, could be limited, could be over, high, you know, very high distances, could be very low bandwidth. And we got to mitigate that. And I think this is part of the, the reason that it forces us to kind of redefine what is the role and responsibility of the cloud and what is the roles and responsibilities of the edge? Um, and really figuring out, looking at all those aspects of uh, uh, data analytics, reliability, monitoring, logging, um, and really figuring out placing those responsibilities where they should be. Um, and so part, part of that is, of course, like you said, as we collect a certain payload at an edge, um, we have to really extract the data set that matters for maybe long-term retention, maybe for compliance regulation reasons, uh, or maybe certain value that we want to run some downstream analytics in the cloud. Um, I think it's a very fine balance. I think it's something that is kind of requires that continuous cycle of improvement. As we gather new data, we learn a lot more, and then we can keep redefining what workloads we want to have running at the edge as well as at the core. And as infrastructure becomes better, processing power and networking, we might uh, uh, make some modifications down the road. Yeah, that's a really, really good point, folks. We're talking all about edge computing, how you can come up with new architectures to solve your problems cost effectively. This is the key, right? You can always solve anything by throwing lots and lots of money and hardware at it, but that's not going to solve your CFO's uh, budgetary problems, folks. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. If you're trying to quit drinking or doing too many drugs, listen to me. You don't know me and we'll never meet. I had a problem like you once. I drank and used to party a little too much till it got out of control and almost ruined my life. 
I realized I needed help to fix my problem before it totally destroyed me. If you've tried to fix your drinking and drug problem and you know you can't do it alone, you need to call the National Treatment Advisors. They'll immerse you into a 30-day program to replace your old habits with new habits and totally change your life. And if you have PPO, private health insurance, the entire program may be covered. Fix your problem right now before it gets any worse. Get clean. Call now and learn more. 877-247-1585-877-247-1585. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio, talking all about edge computing. It affects everything, architecture, assumptions. It affects application performance. Uh, and, of course, security, this whole issue of security, which is a never-ending cat-and-mouse game. That'll never, ever go away because there are so many ways that the bad guys can penetrate your environment. Uh, we're talking with Chris Beavers of NS1. We've got Tony Craythorn uh, of uh, Zadera and Simon Michelson of Citera. And, uh, Tony, I'll throw it out to you. And next up, we'll, we'll go to Chris with this blast radius concept that I want to talk about. But, uh, Tony, tell me a bit about security and how your approach actually helps with security and simplifies all that. So so, so mo- most of our customers um, are, are, are currently with hyperscalers like AWS, Azure, et cetera, GCP. Um, they, they continue to run many of their large applications on there, but but have seen risk and done risk analysis on the fact that they're they're part of a, a massive data center that that is a big fat target to to anybody out there, right? If you you know AWS have only got a few locations across North America, for example, I've got hundreds, and and so that becomes a very easy target. You know, just just look at the various credit cards that have got got hacked and things like that. Um, wow. Over and above that, you know, people are getting getting slightly miffed about about outages, etc. So, so most of our customers come to us from from the likes of AWS again because we're fully EC2 compatible. And and one of the things that they are thinking about is security. You know, when when they're working within a, a large data center with one of the hyperscalers, that's a one to one, right? It's a, it's it's targeting one one big data center, obviously with multi paths targeting one big data center whereas with a distributed edge cloud like we provide that that gives far more security far more resilience Hmm. um, and you know a smaller target you know it's harder to find those than it is one huge data center so that that is one of the one of the obviously cost is a major issue as well we we generally save customers about 40 percent against the hyperscaler but bringing it to the, the the zadara edge cloud does does provide obviously a lower cost but more more reliable more secure experience just purely because because where the data is located yeah and uh i remember learning a few years ago about this shared responsibility model with security and the big vendors which basically means you are responsible absolutely absolutely absolutely. (laughs) it's like some some of that new speak stuff going on yep but uh chris beavers tell me a bit about the blast radius concept which i think is kind of interesting yeah, and it's it's very, very aligned with what Tony has just told us about what his customers are after, right? If you if you put yourself in the in the customer problem lens again, if you are building an application that is meant to be used by people all over the world or you're processing data in a distributed way that um you know is really critical and important somehow, 
um, it, you have a concentration risk, right? If you are, um, you know, bringing most of that data or most of that web traffic or whatever it is that you're servicing to a single place. And so we've all known that for a really long time, right? We've all built these application architectures that are somehow redundant or highly available or whatever. Well, one of the promises of a, of a very distributed edge is that you've got a lot of these little, uh, call it nodes or uh, sites all over the internet, right, all over the world in some cases that um, that can handle workload with respect to whatever your application is. And if you lose one of them, oh, well, right? You know, I've lost a few percent of my capacity or my uh, 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 software de- deployment or code uh, operational capacity or whatever it is, and I'm going to reroute that traffic to the next site, which is probably actually pretty nearby, right? And contrast that with a more traditional architecture of a couple of big, highly available data centers. One of the ways we think about this at NS1 as as operators of a big edge infrastructure to serve our own applications um, is call it like the the nuclear survivability test, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this is where we use this term blast radius, right? Like what is the blast radius of uh, data center average for us, right? It It needs to be pretty small, a small percentage of our end users are impacted if, you know, our, our data center in Secaucus, New Jersey is, is nuked, right? Um, and you also have this notion of blast resiliency. Um, how, how many of my data centers can be nuked before I have a real problem? Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the drivers of this push to the edge, push to more distributed architectures is this idea that you're decreasing the blast radius and you're increasing your blast resiliency. Yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. I'll throw it over to Simon to comment on. Uh, you, you think about the hackers that are taking people down, taking data centers down. I mean, losing any time at all, especially for some of these big companies, is very, very disruptive financially. Right. So you, you better have some plan. And I think this makes a lot of sense to be as federated as you can while still realistically pulling off what you need to do to minimize that blast radius and to minimize the impact of some bad actor. Right, Simon? Right. And I think um, I also like that Chris called it the Wild West, right? I mean, we also see it very much the same where there, there's almost like um, multiple layers to this onion, right? We have our, our headquarters or our core sites where we can really implement state-of-the-art security or we have more control over what we do. As we get to the edge, the far edge, the user's home, we lose control over those types of environments. We still want to provide some access, but those degrees of freedom come at a cost. Right. Um, so we have to do whatever we can to, to at least have those protections in place. And, you know, the way we look at it, Cetera, um, there's a, a number of elements that basically are incorporated to improve your security posture, uh, starting by implementing a zero trust architecture. And I know this is a topic that's that's in, uh, receiving a lot of publicity right now. Um, you know, traditionally, we looked at IT as if you authenticate to a system, you kind of get into through the fort, then you can kind of walk around everywhere uh, as opposed to a modern security architecture that implements zero trust that any relationship between any number of nodes uh, requires authorization and authentication. It's not, um, access is not assumed, right? Um, mm. You have to have the proper credentials and, and, and context to be able to access a certain resource or, or take certain kind of action, like checking out a card online. Um, that's one thing. Second, of course, is delivering on the fundamentals. Uh, what I consider to be the fundamentals is application security, network security, 
uh, and hypervisor security. Those are things that are within our controls that as application developers of elements we can harden within our systems to provide the best possible security and, and forensics for our customers. So they have this big pool of logs where they can also you know, have all the information of what occurred in the system. And I think the unique part, which we're seeing more of that today, is uh, what else can we do that's kind of far and beyond those two elements? And I think that touches on machine learning, AI, and looking at a lot anomaly detection, understanding what is considered to be normal behavior and what is an anomaly. Uh, and based on that anomaly, taking action, re, um, the denying access to a certain resource or system, um, um, deleting a user off your database if needed, that is, is malicious. Um, but we typically find, again, as we use step into the far edge, that's when your attack vector increases and you're more vulnerable to threats that could be exploited um, because your uh, surface expands, right? There's more users and uh, easier points of entry into your um, um, uh, environment. Yeah, those, these are all really, really important topics. And then there's this whole concept of DevSecOps, right? Where you, I mean, we have DevOps where developers are working right with the operations people, and that solved all kinds of problems. I mean, it was really a, a just really cool development in the industry where the business, and, and frankly, I think it kind of saved us from the age-old business IT divide because in the data center, you had this business IT divide where the business people didn't really know the tech, the tech people sometimes didn't really know the business, and so you'd have this battle going back and forth of what's possible, and you know sometimes tech just kind of hiding from doing new things because they didn't want the added trouble. And then DevOps comes along, now you got developers working with it, and I think it kind of balanced everything out because now the developers are, you know, are a different character, frankly, than, than most business people or, or even like traditional IT people. And it, it created a nice dynamic where it wasn't so much of a battlefield anymore. But what is DevSecOps? You know, you, I know some developers who work for some of the very large companies these days, cloud providers. And I mean, it's just, it's almost bewildering the kind of stuff that they do. Artifacts, they build artifacts and they deploy them and you deploy it only in like 1% of the instances to see what happens, then 5%, then 10%, then you roll it out company-wide. So there are all these cool things that you can do. And of course, relying on Git, for example, as your repo to be able to do branches and things. I mean, it's really fascinating what is possible today if you can understand it all, if you can kind of manage all of that and, uh, and wrap your head around it. But it is that kind of approach theoretically should limit the blast radius. It should be you know, allow you to kind of isolate the problems and quarantine them and then deal with it. I remember in the old days of security, you get a virus, you'd quarantine it. Oh, I've got it in the quarantine now. Yay, I stopped it. But uh, Simon made a great point there about machine learning and using this. And I'm telling you, folks, in these bigger environments, if you do not have some form of machine learning or, or automation or artificial intelligence, you will absolutely lose. There's just no way you're going to be able to navigate through the fields. It would be like in the agricultural context, trying to go out there and compete with just shovels and hoes and yaks moving your stuff around compared to this industrial equipment that is just so much more powerful. But folks, podcast bonus segment coming up next. Send me an email, info at dmradio.biz. You are listening to DM Radio. Okay, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio. Talking all things edge computing, we've got Simon Michelson, Tony Craythorne, and Chris Beavers. And Tony, I'll throw it over to you first. This topic of AI and where to deploy it, you made an interesting comment in the break there that it works better on the edge than it does in a hyperscaler somewhere. Explain to, to us what you mean by that and why. 
It's it's really simple. I mean, we we are in the process of building um, uh, a, a GPU instance at Zadara, and you know, GPU Nvidia now I think are the most powerful company in on the in, in terms of IT and especially in terms of processors. But it's it's really straightforward. AI ML needs high speed, needs low latency, needs reliability, needs needs scalability, and and if you're if you're uh, you know a small customer require you know building an application around ai or requiring ai and you're you're in new york and you're accessing the data center in in san francisco you know there there is inherent latency across that where mm-hmm. if you're able to deploy that on a, from again from our perspective on a cloud that are local to the offices where you're you're actually you running those applications or you utilizing those applications they do we 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 know countless examples of where it just runs so much faster but also is is scalable you know if you want to spin up a new a new uh, application in I'll go extreme we 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 we've got cl- cloud in Angola in Africa for example hmm. we we literally have clouds dotted all around all around the world you know we, we the, the the benefits in terms of latency and reliability and being able to scale just far outweigh in my opinion anyway putting it all in one place and relying on one place yeah that's a really really good point uh maybe simon i'll throw it over to you to comment on them uh, and then chris ai it's incredibly powerful machine learning where do you deploy it where is it in your workflow it makes a lot of sense to really think that through because of performance right? Because of timing, what is the latency that we can handle? Is this for a call center, for example? Is this for security at a casino? Yeah. You really have to walk through the use case to understand what those changes are, but, you know, seconds really matter, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, Eric, you know, um, the, depending on the type of AI workload, um, as you say, some, some constraints are related to how fast you need to make a decision. Um, so, for instance, a lot of security applications, you would tend to put that where close to where you would you would want that decision to be made. So, we see a lot of applicability for AI in the ransomware space, right? We're all worried about our data sets getting encrypted. So, as soon as we can identify that there's this abnormal behavior, we will want to turn it off immediately. So, that will be a great application of, of deploying AI at the at an at an edge location. Another instance would be uh, for um, uh, intelligent caching. Uh, in our space specifically, we have that need to anticipate where you would require data, whether that's in a site in Hawaii, whether that's another location in Europe. Uh, so if we can stage that data, however, in this scenario, we have a little bit more time, right, until users or applications would actually require that, but we can start transitioning it, right? So um, um, AI could help us, again, determine where and when you need that data, so it, we make it available for you. Yeah, that's good stuff. And Chris Beavers, I'll bring you back in. You know, I I love machine learning for lots of reasons, one of which because it can handle such tedious, horrifyingly boring tasks and do so at scale. And this is what I remind people about because the the narrative in the media tends to be all about AI and machine learning taking jobs away and all this nonsense. I'm like, give me a break. It's not going to take any jobs away. The best thing I have heard was that uh, what the only – negative impact of AI is that uh, people who use it will keep their jobs, people who don't won't. (laughs) So, you know, tell us a bit about your thoughts on that perspective. And again, being able to, to churn massive amounts of data to ascertain meaningful patterns fairly quickly, and then 
inform your decision about what to do, right, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think that's spot on and in general, right? The other dimension of this that you didn't quite touch on there that I think is sort of implied is that these models, these machine learning models, these AI capabilities, one of the big trends that we're going to start to see is that these are becoming for us, right? They're becoming personalized. They're becoming specific to um, you know particular applications or particular localities or whatever it is. And if you bring it back to this topic of the edge and what does all that really mean? Well, all AI and ML really are, aside from big buzzwords, is models, right? Mm-hmm. That are large. They're driven by uh, volumetric data sets that are um, you know crunched through these models like neural networks and so on and result in uh, a machine learning model um, that that can act for us, right? And, and make our lives better. The way you said, all of us are gonna have our own models, right? All of the applications around us are gonna have models for them. My house is gonna have models for the things that are happening in it. And they're gonna be personalized, right? And so, you know, if you think about what we've been talking about in this segment or in this, in this whole session, really around the edge, machine learning and AI, they're driving a further explosion of data, a further distribution of that data, because I need a different data set than you do in right. Pittsburgh, Eric, for example, right? right? Um, and so that's going to have to happen at the edge. That data is going to need to be deployed at the edge. We're going to need to process it at the edge. It's going to make sense for my model to reside in Ashburn, Virginia, the same as your model, right? We're going to want it near us to provide, again, those low latency, great experiences, machine learning and AI. It's another application, right? Um, and, uh, you, you know, I think all of this ties back to this concept of the edge that's emerged as a result of the increasing complexity and data-driven nature of the world around us, right? And that's, that's really what's happening. It's, uh, it's ideally a virtuous circle and uh, in very bad situations, a uh, vicious circle. <laughs> you don't want to get into the, the vicious circle. You want the virtuous. Well, folks, look these guys up online. Simon Michelson, Tony Craythorn, and Chris Beavers. What a fantastic show. Edge Computing, it's the real deal, folks. Get into it. Figure it out. We'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to DM Radio.